In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Well, good morning, y'all. Welcome to our combined service this morning. Uh, For those of you who have not been to an 11 o'clock service for several years and are afraid it might be some foreign or strange country, let me tell you that this morning what you're looking at is our 11 o'clock service. This is the way it looks, with the exception that we don't have a bulletin for you. Other than that, it's, this is what our 11 o'clock service looks like. So I do invite you, if you've never done it, to come and join us sometime and see uh, what fun it is to sleep in on a Sunday morning. <clears throat> okay, our gospel text this morning is a very dramatic one. And I'd really love to take the time this morning to delve into this very important passage and all that it teaches about the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and the extent of human brokenness and even about the nature of these real spiritual enemies that are adversaries of the church. But since this is Independence Day, we uh, will leave that teaching for another time. The only thing I shall ask you to note from our gospel text this morning is to reflect on the marvelous freedom Jesus gave that poor gathering man. You know, on Independence Day, we often reflect about freedom, don't we? And I'd also like you this morning to reflect on the fact that there are greater freedoms and there are lesser freedoms. There is the freedom of the soul and of the conscience which no one but God can constrain. But there is also the freedom of earthly political citizenship, which is highly constrained and comes with this long list of do's and don'ts and requirements and obligations and, yes, responsibilities. Unfortunately, today, too often our earthly political freedom is meant and interpreted this way. I can do anything I want, and you dare not tell me otherwise. And all the generations before me or after me, I owe nothing to them. Just don't stand in my way. Now, interestingly enough, this attitude can appear on the political right or the political left. It can appear among big business or among big labor. It sometimes appears among power-seeking politicians, but it can also appear among complete political anarchists. And the Christian who has been taught to love her neighbor as herself might sometimes feel trapped right in the middle, not at home in any earthly political camp. This morning, as we celebrate freedom on this Independence Day, I would like to offer for you, if I may, three thoughts for your consideration that I hope will be of value to you who are residents of this world, but citizens of heaven. You ready for this? Here's my first thought. I invite you to give thanks that you are able to be alive in the 21st century in the United States of America. Now, I would challenge you this morning to search all the cultures of this current world and all the entire annals of human history 
And I challenge you to find a time, a place, or a culture where more people have lived more prosperously, in greater peace and tranquility, with more opportunities of self-determination and economic growth, and paid lower taxes while doing it, than exist for you, the people of the United States of America, today. I believe that we all owe God a huge debt of gratitude. Now, if you cannot see that, may I gently suggest that you need to read more broadly and travel more widely. You need to learn what it means to be a Palestinian Christian in Israel who has finally received a U.S. passport after three generations of being a non-citizen of everywhere, of being a complete non-entity before the law and belonging absolutely nowhere. You may need an up-close and personal look for how it is for the rest of the world. Can I tell you a story? <laughs> My son was raised in all the cleanliness and efficiency of Singapore. That was all he'd known his entire life. And after two weeks in Kalimantan and the rest of Southeast Asia, he came home and he said, Dad, I will never complain again now that I've seen how the rest of the world actually lives. That's wisdom from a 13-year-old. Now, I do not mean that our lives are perfect in America, nor that there is not much work to be done to bring about justice for rich and poor alike. But if you cannot be grateful even though things are not perfect, I would like to suggest you may have missed your Christian calling. Because that calling reminds us that here we have no lasting city, and that until Jesus returns again visibly, earthly human societies cannot be perfect. I believe, friends, that today we have it very, very, very good. Now, secondly, I'd like to invite you to think rightly about what, it, about what makes America unique among the nations of the earth, whether then or now. The question is, is America really any different than any other country that's ever existed? Let's explore that question for a moment, shall we? Now, every political entity that has ever existed enjoins obedience to its laws and its regulations. And most nations actually go beyond that, don't they? They encourage and they reward patriotism. Every nation has police forces, and most nations have military to protect its borders 
and perhaps to impose its will on its neighbors. Such things are not what makes America unique. Now, if we move to the world of political theory, then indeed America finds itself among a more elite group. In fact, if you review your history books, you will find out that it is a very tiny minority of people throughout history that have had the privilege of living in a democracy. But then again, there have been and there are currently many nations that are democratic. So this in itself is not what makes America unique. In a modern world, secular democracies do exist. And these secular democracies provide commendable freedoms for its citizens. In a secular democracy, as Craig Novak puts it, a person is responsible for accepting or rejecting the evidence that comes to him or her, the evidence that's presented to the individual conscience. In other words, in a secular democracy, the individual stands supreme. Each person is responsible for choosing their own way of life. And this responsibility then gives rise to this idea of the human right to make such choices. And this right, it seems, is inalienable because theoretically no one is able to make choices about another person's conscience. This secular democracy, in fact, is the basis of the current democracies in Europe today. And here's my personal guess. This is the perspective of a secular democracy. It's about the perspective of 30 to 60% of most Americans. But, unfortunately, we have all seen the limitations of this concept of secular democracy. Because in the political sphere where God does not exist, secular democracy ends up contradicting itself. This is Pope Benedict, believe it or not. Here's what he observed. A purely secular society, living as if there is no God, tends to value individual liberty before any other good. This preference is proposed as public policy on the grounds that it's the most democratic principle and on the grounds that all other policies are dangerous against the democracy. But what happens? We have all seen this with our own eyes. When the individual is free to choose whatever is best for themselves, whether it is abortion or certain forms of sexual activity or any other number of things that you might think of, that freedom ends up denying the rights of others and often doing them great harm, sometimes even fatal harm. Privileging individual preference and choice above all else inevitably ends up privileging some individuals 
over other individuals. And that's the very denial of what a democracy is supposed to be, isn't it? Novak puts it this way. He says, secular democracy thus ends up in its moral self-contradictions, destroying what it claims to love above all, democracy and pluralism. Watch the nightly news. So let me ask the question again. What is it then that makes America unique, if anything at all? Well, Christian, I would like to offer this for your consideration this morning. We are unique to the extent that we are a theistic democracy. We are unique to the extent that we are a theistic democracy. Now, what do I mean by that? A theistic democracy is based on the idea that there is a creator and judge of the world. The theistic democracy is based on the Job 38 passage that we read this morning. That's the kind of God a theistic democracy depends upon. I'd like you to listen to these words from the Virginia Declaration of Religious Liberty. Virginia Declaration of Religious Liberty. You know who wrote that? Thomas Jefferson wrote it in 1777. It was finally adopted by the Commonwealth of Virginia in 1786. Here's what it says, among other things. That religion, or the duty which we owe our creator, and the manner of discharging it, can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. And therefore, all men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion, according to the dictates of their conscience. And that it is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards one another. Now, at first blush, that may sound sort of similar to a secular democracy. We're all individuals, we're all important persons, and therefore we should be free to choose whatever we think is right. However, only to see the similarities here is to miss the entire point, I think. Because what lies behind this statement is a theistic democracy. Here's what's going on, and here's what I think is unique to the nation in which we live. It is a belief that there is a great creator who wishes to extend his friendship to all people. He wants to be thanked and worshipped by them sincerely from a good conscience. And this creator, who, by the way, parenthetically looks something like the Christian God, this creator cannot be deceived by mere outward acts, but he can see directly into the human heart. So the foundation of our democracy rests upon the concept of the freedom of conscience, the conscience of the individual who sincerely and earnestly is attempting to create his life and her worship and their thought patterns to be acceptable to nature and to nature's God, that is, the creator. Before any 
other duty and allegiance, the citizen owes a clear conscience and genuine worship to the Creator. Does it make sense then while the very quiet, the very first right enumerated in our Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, the very first right is the freedom of religious practice, the freedom of speech, the freedom of assembly, and the right to seek redress of grievances when those freedoms have been abridged. We are a theistic democracy. The basis for our democracy is not human rights. The basis of our democracy is in a creator who is seeking people to worship and serve and live before him rightly. And this is also why no one religion can be privileged over any other, whether it is Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or Hindu or agnostic, for the creator alone can see all people's hearts and can judge whether the conscience is clear or is not clear. And it is also why to suppress or to hinder the free exercise of religion is to destroy the very basis of the democracy itself. Now, I would offer for your thinking this morning that this makes us a very unique nation indeed in the whole ebb and flow of human history. We are a theistic democracy. That was heavy. Here's my third thought for the morning. Don't lose your balance. Don't lose your balance. You, Christian, walk this very fine line between heaven and earth, between residence here and citizenship in heaven. You find yourself living in a theistic democracy, yet hounded and harassed by those who only accept or understand secular democracy, or maybe even something worse. But Christian, do not confuse a theistic democracy, even at its very best, for something else. America is not a Christian nation. It has not been, and it never will be, until Jesus comes again. Now, it is true that many of our founders were indeed Christians who had a theistic perspective about their politics. But there were also many, including Jefferson and Franklin, who were theists in their worldview and in their politics and in their religion. They were in no way Christians who could or would or even wanted to confess the Nicene Creed. So what does that mean? It means don't lose your balance. Be neither overawed and enthralled with our theistic democracy, nor be jaded and cynical 
as if life were intolerable simply because it's not perfect yet. Recognize what tremendous good has been accomplished for our faith through this theistic democracy. Think about it. Christianity has flourished. It has reached out from America all around the globe, bringing good news of eternal salvation everywhere. Our churches flourish, don't they? Our Christian schools are free to raise up the next generation of believers. Our laws are even beneficial to the finances of religious institutions. We have been able to recruit and send missionaries both within and without America. Under our form of government, with its theistic assumptions, Christianity has been able to impact ourselves and the world around us a hundredfold more than it would have been under other, some other form of government. Under this theistic democracy, we have today tremendous freedoms to build the kingdom of God in both visible and invisible ways. And friends, if we aren't succeeding, it's not because of a basic flaw in the political system. It is because we have a real spiritual enemy that opposes us. And yes, sometimes because we Christians have been lazy, craven, and self-indulgent, not taking advantage of the tremendous opportunities that are lying right here in front of our noses. Don't lose your balance. All around us, we see idealists, and many of them are well-meaning Christians, who want to tar all politicians with the same brush. Yes, in every age, the cynical and self-serving do enter into politics. And it's been that way since Cain and Abel. But we also have many God-fearing politicians who work hard for us. And no, they're not about to usher in the millennium. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. But every day, they arise and go to work seeking to serve the common good. They serve the citizens of this country with laws that do the most good for the most number of people. And no, they can't vote every vote the way we'd like them to. Friends, it's politics, not the perfection of the new Jerusalem. But we do see the benefits of their labors in a peaceful society. We see multiple opportunities to go about our lives quietly, inviting others to a citizenship that lasts for eternity. For the love of God, they serve you and me, and for the love of God, they work to improve the state. Why? Because they know that in a world that isn't all just chaos and confusion and hatred, a world where the family is made strong and the lights work, the message about a Christian God 
who is far more than a theistic creator, the message about the Christian God in Jesus Christ, that message will have much greater plausibility in the society that works than one that's all darkness and chaos. So friends, don't lose your balance. Rather, engage. No, this theistic democracy is far from perfect. Because the theistic God hasn't much of an answer for human sin, brokenness, and our fallen nature. It's the Christian message that can deal rightly with these things. Nevertheless, don't walk off in sanctimony or despair. Rather, engage. Work for justice. Do good. In fact, do good so well and so faithfully that you become a modern-day Daniel. Engage. Be courageous. Call evil evil when you must. But also, love goodness so much that you call goodness good when it really is good. Engage. Pray for those preserving our religious liberty against secularism. And pray, not so that we can avoid persecution and have some kind of easy ride in this world, but pray so that the gospel can be moved front and center into the marketplace. To our neighbors and across the globe. Don't lose your balance. This morning my prayer is that God would bless America so we can, with a clear conscience, bless him rightly by our lives and by our religion. Amen.